Second Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 16. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him, he told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you and you have not embarrassed me, but just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. You will remember that when we started studying Second Corinthians, in the opening verses of chapter 1, Paul referred to troubles, despairing of life even, and depending on God. And in chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, he referred particularly to the comfort of God by saying, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. 
and our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. So as we went through that scripture, we learned that God comforts us by encouraging us. God comforts us by coming alongside us and assisting us. And God comforts us by giving us of himself. These means of comfort are all related to how God deals with us. The deeply personal and intensely loving care of our Heavenly Father for his children. We learned that our response to these actions of God should be to comfort others with the comfort of God that we have received. We are to freely give what we have freely received. Now here in chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I want to highlight an additional aspect of the comfort of God. And then just go to that next slide there, Ryan. Godly comfort is intended to be a ministry of the church. It's not just about the fact that God comforts us directly, but godly comfort is intended to be a ministry of the church. In verses 5 and 6, Paul writes, For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within, but God who comforts the downcast, comforted us. When Paul uses the word downcast, he is referring to being brought low with grief. He's talking about being depressed. His fears are not for himself. That's clear from his various letters. Every time you read through his letters, he's not afraid of what he will face and what he's going through and the troubles that he is encountering. But his Fears. He was so afraid of what was happening to the Corinthians and the Macedonians and others that he, was, he says in multiple places, I fear that you've received the gospel in vain or I fear that you know, you've experienced the love of God and then you're turning away. I fear for your future, for your life, for eternity. I fear for you. So he, he has these concerns, these anxious thoughts about these believers and he is afraid, but he is so saddened, he's so affected by what is going on to the point of being depressed. This is not just, you know, a light sort of concern. He is deep in anguish for the sake of his believers, of his brothers and his sisters. And we don't typically think of the heroes of the faith as being depressed. We don't, we don't typically say that, we don't talk about it that way. But you find references to depression, to being downcast. You find references to that in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, and in the New Testament. In fact, when you look at Jesus himself, before he goes to the cross, even though, and we're going to see, you know, come to this point about repentance, even though he did not have to repent for any sin, he is deeply distressed. He is in deep anguish for the sake of the people for the sake of those that he loves so we see this in terms of depression and this 
great burden coming on even believers and even the heroes of the faith. Now, from our more recent church history, many of you may have read sermons or devotionals by the noted 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. He was referred to as the Prince of Preachers. Thousands would come to hear him preach. And on a notable Sunday morning in 1866, about five years after he had begun his pastoral ministry at London's Metropolitan Tabernacle, Spurgeon shocked his 5,000 listeners. This, this is not at the, the time of the internet and you know, having, having all sound system and none of those things. 5,000 people sitting there listening to him preach. And he said to them, he announced from the pulpit, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever gets to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. For some in the audience, it was incomprehensible that the world's greatest preacher could know the valley of despair. But and it wasn't just a one-time thing. His depression was a regular part of his life. 21 years later, after he said this, 21 years later in 1887, just five years before he passed away at age 57, he described his mental state by saying, personally, I have often passed through this dark valley. Even the children of God are prone to being overwhelmed by fears and anxious thoughts. In his commentary on 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Kent Hughes writes this, Depression has been called the common cold of the soul. For sooner or later, most people catch it. And God's servants are not immune. So, keep in mind that the Bible addresses how we deal with these anxious thoughts and what it means to come to the Lord and so on. And, you know, there's all sorts of scriptures that we can bring to bear when we consider this. So we don't ignore depression and deep grief and anguish that comes on us. We deal with it. We don't say just grin and bear it, you know, put up with it. We, we go after these things and we address mental health issues but even as Paul reports his depression, he also contrasts the comfort he received from God with this statement, but God, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us. Now, I said earlier that God dealt with people directly and he assured us of his presence. He assures us of his presence. He reminds us of his promises. He comes and is with us physically. You know, he is in our midst. He moves in our midst as in his presence is known. But here, we see here that God is comforting Paul in a very different way. So what is that specific way in which God comforts Paul in this instance? There were three means by which Paul is receiving the comfort of God as he is in this depression, in this anxious you know, mode, in this fearful thinking. The first one is through the coming of Titus. He says, I was encouraged. I was comforted. I was 
overjoyed by the coming of Titus. Why? Because Titus represents a fellowship of a specific companion and a helpmate that is of joy to Paul. He speaks of others like this. He talks of Priscilla and Aquila and you know, Barnabas and Mark and so, and so on. He talks of others. When we read in Romans, he has a list of names and so on. But in this instance, he's speaking and specifically of Titus. And he says, when Titus came, oh, I was comforted. The application, and as I'm going through these points, I want you to just be thinking of and praying about and saying, how does this apply? What is God trying to say to me? The application for us is that in our lives, we need to have specific people who will make our hearts glad. You see them, you'll smile. You hear from them, you're eager to talk to them. They tell you a word of encouragement and you say, oh, that was so apt, so timely. I'm so glad that you're in my life. Who is it in your life that can speak into your life in that way? Who is it that you're being that way for, to them? That when you sh just show up, when you show up, the other person is encouraged. When they show up, you're encouraged. You're blessed. You're comforted. And even if you are in deep depression, even if you are in the midst of this anxious thought, you don't know how to move forward, you're worried about somebody or something, when that person shows up, oh, you say, oh, let's pray together. Let's be glad in the Lord. Let's stand together in faith. And you're able to encourage one another. So the first way in which Paul is comforted is through this coming of Titus. The second way he says that he is comforted is that he says, I was so glad when I heard about the service, the comfort that you Corinthians rendered to Titus. Not how they treated Paul, but how they treated Titus. And think about that. Don't you sometimes just feel so glad when you hear about a third party doing something on behalf of someone you love and care for. Maybe your parents, maybe your siblings, maybe your friends. You hear about somebody else being good to them. And, you know, they, they, your, whoever, your family member or friend later tells you about it and they say, oh, you know, this person called me or this person did this for me and this person was a great help to me. And you feel glad. So just because there's another person ministering to, rendering comfort, being of encouragement to somebody that you care about, that you love, you feel glad. You're feeling some, maybe some level of anxiety about your loved one. You're feeling some level of anxiety about the others that are involved and in, in the context. And just because there is that mutual benefit being you know, rendered between the two of them, between those parties, you're encouraged. So Paul says, I was comforted, I was made glad because you served Timothy, or pardon me, Titus. And then the third thing, he says, I was greatly encouraged, I was overjoyed because of the good report of your concern for me and your longing for me and your praying for me. 
And so the third way in which Paul is encouraged and we can be encouraged is that we know that there's someone who cares enough about us to pray for us, who longs to see us, who wants to spend time with us. And we say, oh, I'm so glad that there's somebody in my life like that. Now, notice that these means of comfort are all related to how we deal with each other, especially how we deal with each other within the body of Christ, within the family of God. As much as God comforts us directly, personally, He also comforts us indirectly through others. God has placed each of us in the church so that we may comfort one another with the comfort that we have received from the Lord. Both the relationship with the head, the Lord Jesus, and the relationship with the rest of the body are critical. That's why local churches are so important. That's why you need to be in the fellowship of the believers. Because we would comfort one another. We need both relationships, both with the Lord and with the body, to be comforted out of our depression, to be comforted out of our anxiety, to be comforted out of our lack of knowledge, and to be able to say, oh, I have somebody who's standing with me. There's somebody who comes and who's gladdening my heart. There's other people that are gladdening the hearts or encouraging those that I care about. And then there is the longing that we have for one another itself, that concern, that love, that care that we would show to one another ourselves that gladdens us, that comforts us. Oh, now it's like you say, oh, you know, I'm going through a tough time, but I know who will stand with me. I know who will pray with me. I know who will encourage me. I know how I can handle this situation. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that you know, lifting us up and building us up? That's the purpose of the local church. That's what we should be there for. That we would be able to stand with one another. Now, having described the interpersonal benefit of godly comfort, Paul then transitions to describe the interpersonal benefit of godly sorrow. And here's what I mean by that. Let's go to the next slide. Godly sorrow is intended by the Lord for repentance. Godly sorrow is intended by the Lord for repentance. Paul says, I don't regret that I made you sorrowful. He's acknowledging that his correction and rebuke made them sad. We typically push back at correction and discipline because it makes us sad. We don't just say, oh, that's great. I feel terrible when you're correcting me. But, you know, we say, oh, you know, we're, we're like little child who cries at their parents' correction, right? We are, we're prone to say, I don't like you because you're making me feel sad. We don't, we don't say, you know, why are you making me feel sad? We say, you're making me feel sad. You make me feel bad. I don't like you, right? We tend to be like little children. But Paul says there is a good kind of sorrow. A godly sorrow, a, st a sorrow that stems from a realization of sin, a realization of wrong thoughts, actions, and plans. 
We come to our senses. We start to realize that we're going in the wrong way. There is a good kind of godly sorrow that leads to repentance, to a reversal of ungodly thoughts, actions, and direction that are influenced by the world, our flesh, and the devil. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance enables us to realign ourselves with God's truth, God's will, and God's ways. That's what God is about. In fact, Paul says the sorrow at our sin was intended by God. He wants to make you feel sad. He wants to get you to feel bad about where you're going. He doesn't want you to say, oh, it's great. I'm so happy that I'm sinning. You know, he says, I want you to feel sad about this. There is a godly sorrow that's intended so that we would say, oh, Lord, I need to have a change. I've been going in this direction. I need to turn it around. And you, you alone, Lord, have to intervene. We don't lash out at the messenger of God through whom the message of correction may come. If somebody's coming to us and saying, hey, I think there's a little bit something awry in your life here. I think you're going in the wrong path. We don't say, who are you? Why are you trying to make me feel sad? We say, I hear you. I listen to what you're saying. You are a person that has been of encouragement to me. You are in my local and in my global fellowship. And you are a person that cares about me. And therefore, I hear you, I listen to you. And when you bring this word of correction, when you bring this word of discipline, I pay attention. Because we are to recognize the loving intent of God to set us right for our own good. In verse 10, verse 10 says that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Paul says that of the Corinthians that their godly sorrow produced an earnestness to live godly lives, an eagerness to clear themselves, indignation at their sin, alarm of God's judgment, longing and concern for Paul and readiness to see justice done. He says these are the things that are being stirred up in you when godly sorrow is at work, when there is a realization of sin. At every point, they had proved themselves to be made innocent by repenting of wrongdoing and receiving the forgiveness and restoration of God. But verse 10 also says that worldly sorrow that is centered on self, not grief for sin against God, but is centered on self, worldly sorrow brings death. Here's an important difference between godly and worldly sorrow. With godly sorrow, we recognize the heart and hand of a loving father, of a loving God. We recognize his heart and his hand at work in our lives. We receive comfort from our personal relationship with God and personal relationships with the children of God. We experience genuine repentance. We turn away from all that led to the separation with God and we understand that God is at work. With worldly sorrow, 
when we are entirely self-reliant versus relying on God and his children, we can become so desperately overwhelmed that we despair even of life. We not only pass through the dark valley, but we also entertain dark thoughts. We may even contemplate ending it all. And sadly, for many, worldly sorrow brings both spiritual and physical death. Which means that within the body of Christ, Ryan, if you go to the next slide there, we respond and apply the word of God that we have heard by ensuring both godly comfort and godly sorrow. We have to have that balance in our church. We have to have that balance in the word of God, in the church of God, that we would say, I want to be of godly comfort to you. I will encourage you. I'll stand with you. I'll tell you to keep going. I'll help you to persevere. But I will also, I will also bring to your attention those things that may result in godly sorrow that will cause you to say, oh, there's something wrong here. And then I will make a correction. I've got to do both. You've got to do both for me. We can't just be comforting one another and not applying godly correction, discipline, things that are necessary. And so we respond to this word. We encourage one another. We build ourselves up in our most holy faith in the church by ensuring both godly comfort and godly sorrow. We can't be just about wielding the rod of correction. We can't punish anyone into repentance. We can't beat them enough and then say, now repent. Right? Remember, we are to deal with people with purity, understanding, patience, kindness, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, sincere love, truthful speech, and the power of God for their good. Not for our good or our own satisfaction. We do all of those things. We respond to people in those ways for their good, that it may benefit them. And if we're living like that, if we're doing those kinds of things, then we must minister godly comfort even as we speak the truth in love that can lead to godly sorrow. As we're speaking, as we're engaged with truthful speech and that truthful speech spoken in love brings about godly sorrow, we combine that with godly comfort and we minister to one another. We must look out for one another that we're not giving in to worldly sorrow by trying to handle anything in our own strength. We must look out for one another that we don't remain in our depression. We must reach out with loving, compassionate care to those who are surrounded by troubles without and fears within. I mentioned earlier that, Sir, that Spurgeon was prone to deep depression. Martin Luther, the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation, was also subject to such intense depression that he would hide himself away for days and his family would remove all dangerous implements from the house for fear he would harm himself. In one of these times of depression, his wife, Katharina, 
entered his room dressed in mourning clothes. So when, you know, like how you would dress to go to a funeral. That got Luther's attention and he asked who had died. Katharina replied that no one had died, but from the way that Martin Luther was behaving, she thought God had died. And in a sense, you know, when we talk about God, worldly sorrow bringing death, in a sense, there is death associated with both godly and worldly sorrow. When we give in to worldly sorrow, we're living as if God has died. When we let worldly sorrow overwhelm us, it's as if God doesn't exist. When we try to deal with our grief on our own, it's as if there is no omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, loving God who through the gift of salvation and the promise to be with us even in the valley of the shadow of death will ease our burdens and bring us into eternal life with Him. It's as if we just forget all of His promises and His word to us. When we try to deal with worldly sorrow or grief or the, the loss or anguish or anything else in our own strength, it is as if God has died. We're not saying, oh living God, true and living God, come and help me. Come and be with me. Show me how to deal with this. We're saying, oh, woe is me. I'm the only one that has suffered like this. Nobody knows. And we deal with worldly sorrow as if God has died. But you know, when we embrace godly sorrow, it's as if we have died. It's not as if God has died. It's as if we have died. Because, you know, when we repent of our sins, when we crucify our flesh with its passions and desires, when we are raised up to new life in Christ Jesus, we're saying, Lord God, you alone. You alone, not me. I die to self, and I ask you to live through me, in and through me, in such a way that your life is now manifest. I may be prone to all these things, but I, in as much as I will die to self and let you live in me, I will see the victory of the Lord. I will see the power of the Lord. I will see your presence manifest. I will see how you are at work. This morning, even as I'm saying all of these things, you may be thinking of people. Maybe yourself. Maybe somebody that you know. They're either going through intense worldly sorrow or they're going through some situation where they need comfort. Maybe external circumstances are affecting them. Maybe there's a break in relationship with the Lord. All sorts of things that cause anguish of soul. And maybe there is depression. Not, not some mild irritation, annoyance, something else, you know. But, but true, deep depression. What's the solution? What can we do? We have to come to the God of all comfort. We have to seek out those that have been comforted by the Lord so that they can share with us. We have to be willing to give what we receive so that the life 
of the Lord flowing through us. So that living water that refreshes us will absolutely bring us into a completely different reality than if we live isolated, closed off to ourselves, caught up in our own grief. And so the Bible tells us that as we come to the Lord and we balance this, the Lord will do His work. In our church, I want to challenge you. If you say to yourself, well, I don't have anybody in this church who I can rely on, who gladdens my heart, who is of comfort to me, who I can just pick up the phone and they'll immediately encourage me. Well, I want to encourage you, before you wait for that to happen, you be that to somebody else. You call somebody. You encourage them. You pray for them. Through, through this week, you say, Lord God, who could I be praying for? You've heard some of the prayer requests. You know of some of the needs that are going on. Reach out to somebody. Offer a word of encouragement. Be the person that, just as Titus was to Paul, who when Paul looks at Titus even, he says, oh, so happy, so glad. And if you're doing that through the week, if you're engaged with your brothers and your sisters through the week in that way, when you come together on a Sunday, you can't wait to get here. You can't wait to see that person. You can't wait to say, oh, so good to see you. So glad that we could be together in the Lord all week in prayer and encouragement and so on. And now we get to worship with others and lift up the name of Jesus. That's what the church is meant to be. It's not about anything else. It's about a group of people coming together in that way to stand together in what the Lord has called us to. Let's be that church. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, Lord, you are good to us. You love us. You care for us. You comfort us. And, Father, just as much as you comfort us directly, us individually, you are personal. We thank you, that, Lord, you are also dealing with us indirectly through others. You have called us to be in the body. And, Lord, we... we often talk about spiritual gifts and other strengths that are meant to be amplified as we stand one with another and the gifts are manifest and, Lord, the capabilities are, 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 are lived out. But, Lord, we are also meant to stand together in our weaknesses, that we would be of comfort to one another, that we would be of encouragement to one another, that godly comfort is not just coming from heaven above, but it's coming from the earth here. Lord, our brothers and our sisters. Lord, each one of us affecting the lives of our brothers and our sisters. And Lord, even as much as we would encourage one another, I pray that we would, Lord, actually affect one another to godly sorrow. That we would correct one another in love. That we would speak a word that is from the Lord so it has grace and compassion and wisdom that we would give counsel that says, hey, I think you're going in the wrong direction in this one, in this area. Repent. Come back to the Lord. Let's stand together. And Father, maybe there's no opportunity for that, for a direct intervention. 
but we pray for the intervention of the Holy Spirit. We pray for godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that brings us to salvation, and for which there is no regret. Oh Lord, let that be our reality. Let that be our truth. Father, now in the name of Jesus, we pray that, Lord, we would be a church that encourages one another, that stands with one another, that, Lord, puts this word to, into practice and sees the fruit of it manifesting through the rest of this month, through the rest of this year, through the rest of our lives. Make it so. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.